Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. It's time for Justice Matters with former federal prosecutor and MSNBC analyst Glenn Kirshner. This weekend's podcast, Glenn runs down the legal recap of the past week. First up, how significant is it that the DOJ has acknowledged that Donald Trump can face civil lawsuits over the January 6th riots? Here's Glenn. Thanks for once again joining me for this weekend edition of Justice Matters. On Saturdays, we we try to air things out. We talk about the biggest legal stories of the past week, and then we take on an issue of reform, something that needs to be reformed in our government. So, you know, we're never going to run out of topics, are we, friends? Well, today, after tackling the legal recap, we're going to take on the need for police reform. Talk about a, a big topic. Talk about an intractable problem. Well, I'm going to give you my thoughts, just one man's opinion on how we can actually go about reforming policing in this country. Now, I draw from my 30 years of experience as a prosecutor, a military prosecutor and a civilian prosecutor, a federal prosecutor and a local prosecutor, heck, a trial court prosecutor and an appellate court prosecutor. You know, I'm somebody who has probably dealt with as many law enforcement agencies as any other prosecutor. And that really is a result of the unique experiences that a prosecutor has when they are prosecuting cases in the District of Columbia. You see, the DC U.S. Attorney's Office, that is the field office of the Department of Justice that operates in the District of Columbia, That office and the prosecutors there, I was there for nearly a quarter of a century, have a really unique jurisdictional responsibility. Because yes, we are the traditional federal prosecutors. So we prosecute all of the cases in the federal district court in the District of Columbia. I prosecuted, you know, multiple lengthy RICO trials, for example, in that very courthouse. That's the courthouse where the insurrectionists are being prosecuted. The Oath Keepers were on, I think, the third wave of Oath Keepers being tried for seditious conspiracy, trying to violently overthrow the United States government. The prosecutors there, my friends and former colleagues, are prosecuting the Proud Boys in the first seditious conspiracy trial against that organization. So yes, as The federal prosecutors in D.C., we prosecute all of the federal crimes in D.C. federal court, but we also are like the local district attorneys for the District of Columbia. We prosecute all of the local crimes in the superior court for the District of Columbia. We are the only U.S. attorney's office of the 93 U.S. attorney's offices operating around the nation and in the territories 
that have that dual responsibility of prosecuting not only all federal crimes, but all local crimes. Out in all the other U.S. attorneys' offices, it is the state district attorneys or the Commonwealth's attorneys in Virginia or the state's attorneys in Maryland that prosecute the local crimes, but not in D.C. In D.C., we are one-stop shopping for prosecution at the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. So as a result of that kind of unique jurisdictional responsibility as a prosecutor in D.C., I got to work with countless law enforcement agencies. First and foremost, the Metropolitan Police Department, MPD. Those are our local partners in crime fighting in D.C., but we are also the prosecutors that work with, for example, the FBI, the DEA, the ATF, Park Police, Capitol Police, Secret Service Uniform Division, the U.S. Marshal Service, the Amtrak Police, the Postal Police, the Metro Police, the Smithsonian Police. You beginning to get the picture, friends? There's a whole lot of police agencies in D.C. So I am really keenly interested in the topic of police reform, and I try to bring to bear my decades of experience working with endless police agencies and what I've learned about how I think police departments can operate better to protect and serve, how we can really reduce the incidence of, for example, excessive force. And I really look forward to talking with you all about that in the second half of today's kitchen table chat. But let's tackle the first half, and that is the week's legal recap. Okay, friends, so the first story I want to take on is actually a pretty big deal. The Department of Justice has weighed in, formally, in court, and announced that Donald Trump does not have immunity from being sued by the Capitol Police officers and the members of Congress who were at the Capitol when Donald Trump launched his attack on January 6, 2021. And this is a really important story for a number of reasons. First and foremost, for the folks who were injured at the Capitol that day the Capitol Police officers who were physically injured when Donald Trump launched his angry mob and told them, go to the Capitol, fight like hell or you won't have a country anymore. Now stop the certification, stop the steal. The members of Congress who may not have been injured physically, but they suffered extreme emotional distress and damage as a result of the Trump-inspired attack on the U.S. Capitol. But let me start with kind of the procedural background. How did we get here? And then let's talk about the implications of the Department of Justice taking the legal position that Donald Trump does not have immunity. And DOJ also said his language, his speech on January 6th does not enjoy First Amendment free speech protection. So let's start with the sort of background, the procedure. Members of Congress and Capitol Police officers sued Donald Trump for the damage he did, the injuries he inflicted when he launched his angry mob on the Capitol. And you know how Donald Trump 
is defending himself in that suit that was brought by the Capitol Police officers and members of Congress, he actually said through his attorneys, you can't sue me. You know why? I have absolute immunity and I am permitted to give a speech that expressly directs people to imminent violence, to attack the Capitol. I am entitled to do that and I have absolute immunity so you cannot hold me accountable. I'm telling you, when I read that, it was breathtaking in its depravity, in its callousness, in its lawlessness. But the judge presiding over the suit, Judge Amit Mehta, said, uh, yeah, no, you're wrong. You can be sued. You can be held responsible for the attack on the Capitol that you incited and you inspired. And then, not surprisingly, Donald Trump appealed that decision up to the appellate court. And the posture that it's in right now is the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals in Washington, D.C. is deciding the appeal, deciding whether Judge Mehta was right and the lawsuit against Donald Trump can proceed or whether he was wrong and it should just be thrown out because Donald Trump has absolute immunity, as he claims. They ask DOJ what its position is regarding a president claiming absolute immunity under the circumstances of what Donald Trump did. And DOJ filed its position. And I want to read just two sentences from what the Department of Justice filed with the appellate court because it's so powerful. They said, here, the district court concluded, in other words, Judge Mehta ruled that plaintiffs' complaints, plaintiffs are the Capitol Police officers and the members of Congress who are suing Donald Trump, their complaints, the complaints they filed, plausibly allege that President Trump's speech at the rally on January 6, 2021, precipitated the ensuing attack on the Capitol and, in particular, the complaints plausibly allege that the president's speech encouraged imminent private violent action and was likely to produce such action. Boiled down to its essence, what the Capitol Police officers and the members of Congress who are suing Donald Trump plausibly claimed is that Donald Trump's speech caused the attack on the Capitol. And then moving forward to page 16 of the DOJ filing, here's what they say. DOJ says no part of a president's official responsibilities includes the incitement of imminent private violence. By definition, such conduct plainly falls outside the president's constitutional and statutory duties. Them some powerful words, friends. Okay, so why is this an important pronouncement from the Department of Justice? Well, first and foremost, it's important for the people who are suing Donald Trump, the Capitol Police officers, the members of Congress, for the damage Trump caused when he ordered the attack on the Capitol. But if we take a step back, Let's talk about why else it's important. It's important because it helps clear a path 
a path that will lead to a Trump indictment for January 6th. Why do I say that? Well, first of all, this DOJ filing pertains only to the civil lawsuit, okay? And DOJ was careful to say, listen, we're not rendering an opinion on any future criminal cases or criminal prosecutions. We're just answering the question in this civil lawsuit that the appellate court asked us to answer. However, why do I say it clears a path for special counsel Jack Smith to move in the direction of a criminal indictment of Donald Trump for the insurrection? Well, because if the Department of Justice had taken a contrary position, if DOJ had said, you know what, we've given this a hard look and we've concluded what Donald Trump did in his speech on January 6th and in the run-up to January 6th actually falls within his official presidential duties, therefore he has immunity. Or if DOJ had said, you know what, we think the things he said on January 6th enjoy First Amendment free speech protection such that you really can't do anything about it. You can't, you can't go after him. You can't penalize him. If DOJ had rendered those opinions, well, that would have made Jack Smith's job infinitely more difficult when it came to indicting Donald Trump for the insurrection. But DOJ didn't do it. DOJ said Donald Trump has no immunity and he has no First Amendment free speech protections for what he did. He can be sued. He can be held liable. He can be held accountable. So in a very real sense, not in a precedential sense, this isn't legal precedent. I would call it kind of atmospheric precedent. It sets a tone that DOJ has already taken a position that Trump ain't immune for what he did in the run-up to and on January 6th. And that is an important development. Coming up next, Congressman Scott Perry is trying to keep the contents of his cell phone hidden from the DOJ, but the judge isn't buying his excuses. This is Justice Matters. Hi, Beowulf here with Justice Matters, and I'm here to remind you about one of the best decisions I've made recently, getting Factor Meals. Eating is so much easier for me with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor is flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up today and save. I've done the math and I can tell you Factor is less expensive than takeout. And every meal is dietitian approved, nutritious and delicious. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and start meeting your meal and nutrition goals. Head over to factormeals.com slash glen50 and use code glen50 to get 50% off. That's code glen50 
at factormeals.com slash glen50 to get 50% off. Remember, go to factormeals.com slash glenn 50 and use code glen50 to get 50% off today. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. A new ruling by the judge in Washington, D.C., with supervisory authority over the grand jury, has rejected the special privilege claims of Congressman Scott Perry to look at communications in his cell phone. What will happen next? Here's Glenn. Okay, friends, second story. Congressman Scott, pardon me, Perry, is about to have his dirt exposed. Okay, so first of all, let me set this one up. Representative Scott Perry is neck deep in the insurrection. Most importantly, you'll recall that Perry asked for a pardon because he knew he committed crimes on and around January 6th and he wanted to get away with those crimes, so he asked for a pardon. We don't yet know whether he received one or not, but what has the FBI and the Department of Justice done to investigate Perry's crimes? Well, perhaps most importantly, they had enough evidence to apply for a search warrant because they had probable cause to believe there was evidence of crime in Perry's phone. And a federal judge agreed and issued a search warrant. And the FBI seized Scott Perry's phone. But friends, the prosecutors have never seen what's in Perry's phone. You say, how can that be? Prosecutors have had his phone for months now. Well, it's because this Department of Justice does things the right way. They actually respect possible privileges of a member of Congress. So let's talk about that. When the FBI seized Perry's phone and gave it to the prosecutors, the prosecutors made a copy of it. We call that imaging the phone. And they never looked at what is in Scott Perry's phone. Instead, they gave it directly to Chief Judge Beryl Howell. Now, Judge Howell is the D.C. federal court judge who has supervisory responsibility over the grand jury investigating the insurrection. And the prosecutor said to Judge Howell, look, we don't know what might be privileged on Representative Perry's phone. So we're going to give it to you without even looking at it. And we're going to give Representative Perry an opportunity to lodge any privilege claims he thinks he might have over the contents of his cell phone, specifically speech or debate clause privilege. And friends, what that involves is the Constitution gives a privilege to members of Congress if they are involved in speech or debate about, for example, legislation, 
then they can claim that that information is privileged. It can't be used against them in a civil suit or in a prosecution. It can't even be shown to the prosecutors or the FBI agents because it's privileged. So Representative Perry had an opportunity to tell Judge Howell, okay, there are privileged communications in my phone, emails and text messages that the prosecutors should not be permitted to see inferentially because, you know, they involve me robustly debating legislation. And here's what Perry told Judge Howell. He said, Judge, there are more than 2,200 privileged communications in my phone. Specifically, Perry put the number at 2,219 speech or debate privileged communications that the prosecutors do not get to see. Now remember, the prosecutors can't even intelligently respond to that because they haven't looked at those 2,219 messages, so they can't even meet the force of Perry's assertion that they're privileged. But as I say, what they did is they gave it to Chief Judge Beryl Howell, who I will say is a very, very good, fair, strong, respectable jurist. And they said, Judge, we trust you. You can look at them. I know we can't really respond to his claim because we don't know what's in those messages, but we trust you, Judge. And so Judge Howell looked at the 2,219 messages that Scott Perry swore were privileged. And do you know what Judge Howell ruled? She said of the 2,219 messages that Perry is trying to hide from the prosecutors and the grand jury and by extension from the American people, 2,055 of them are not privileged. Friends, is it any surprise that Scott, pardon me, Perry was trying to nefariously, corruptly, falsely hide from prosecutors? more than 2,000 communications that were not privileged, communications that were in his phone that were evidence of crime? Well, guess what? The prosecutors will get to see them, and in fact, Judge Howell ordered that they should be disclosed to the prosecutors. Now, the prosecutors won't get to see them immediately because there's still litigation ongoing. You know, there's always litigation ongoing, isn't there? Friends, God forbid we should ever enjoy some timely justice, some prompt accountability, but I digress and my blood pressure spikes. So the prosecutors ultimately will see those 2,055 non-privileged communications that Perry was trying to hide from the grand jury, and I predict they're going to be spectacular, and they're probably going to be extremely enlightening on the question of precisely why Scott Pardon Me Perry had to request a pardon to try to get away with the crimes he knew he committed on and around January 6th. Coming up next, how could it be that even more classified documents are being found at Mar-a-Lago? Will there be more charges coming? This is Justice Matters.
yet another box of top-secret documents have been found in Donald Trump's office at his resort in Florida. Will Trump ever be held accountable for the many crimes he's committed? Here's Glenn. Okay, friends, third and final story. More classified documents were found at Mar-a-Lago in Donald Trump's office because, of course, they were. Here is how CNN reported that story. Headline, how a box with classified documents ended up in Trump's office months after FBI searched Mar-a-Lago. The Justice Department wants to know how a box containing a handful of classified records turned up at Mar-a-Lago late last year, well after several rounds of searches of the property by federal agents. Investigators working for special counsel Jack Smith in recent weeks have interviewed a Trump aide who copied classified materials found in the box using her cell phone to put them on a laptop, because of course she did. The classified documents contained in the box were discovered in December, after the Justice Department told Trump's legal team to conduct yet another search for documents at Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort. People familiar with the Trump legal team's efforts to locate documents describe a confusing chain of events that delayed discovery of the box, including having its contents uploaded to the cloud, because that's of course where we want our national secrets to be stored, up in the cloud. I don't know anything about the cloud, and I don't know if when it rains we all get drenched with national security information. They were also emailed to a Trump employee and moved to an off-site location before, get this, ending up back at a Mar-a-Lago bridal suite that is now Trump's office, the very place the FBI had searched just weeks earlier. Friends, ain't that some stuff? So, after the FBI searched Mar-a-Lago and found classified documents in Donald Trump's office, in Donald Trump's desk drawer, lo and behold, more boxes with more classified documents are moved here, there, and everywhere, and then after the FBI search, they were returned to Donald Trump's office. You've got to be kidding me. You know, friends, this makes this whole episode an absurd and cruel joke on the American people, that Donald Trump has not yet been indicted for any of his classified documents crimes, which all seem to be crimes in progress. They're continuing. You know, he hasn't been held accountable for his classified documents crimes, for unlawfully continuing to withhold those documents. He hasn't been indicted for obstructing justice by violating a grand jury subpoena for the return of those documents. He hasn't been held accountable for his espionage crimes, which involve compromising and mishandling national defense information because that espionage crime is one of the crimes that was listed in the search warrant for Mar-a-Lago because there was probable cause to believe 
that espionage crime, mishandling national defense information had been committed and there would be evidence of that crime found at Donald Trump's home, Mar-a-Lago. When will Donald Trump be held accountable for any of his ongoing crimes? Let's hope that day is coming, friends. Coming up next, is there a way to bring about reform in the many police agencies across the country? Glenn has a plan. This is Justice Matters. Most people agree that there has to be police reform due to the many instances of excessive force and civil lawsuits. Is it possible to bring about changes that will make police departments more accountable? Here's Glenn. Okay, friends, let's move on to our discussion about reform. And today we're going to talk about reforming policing in America. And you'll excuse me if I don't spend any time trying to convince you that we need to reform policing in America. I am going to assume that most people would agree that reform is necessary. I mean, if it wasn't, we wouldn't be awash in excessive force cases, often resulting in death. We wouldn't be awash in civil rights violations. And I always start this discussion by saying, I worked with so many police officers, military and civilian, federal, state, and local. And in my experience, the majority of them, the vast majority of them are in it for the right reasons, to protect and serve. They do it well and honorably. They don't abuse the citizenry. But there are far too many who do abuse the citizenry. And, you know, people will say, well, you know, you're going to have bad apples in every organization. That's true, right? We've got bad apples in the, the ranks of the prosecutors and the ranks of the criminal defense attorneys and the ranks of the judges and the ranks of the police and the teachers and the clergy and the politicians and the politicians and the politicians. Did I say that three times? Yeah, we have bad apples everywhere. But here's the problem. When it comes to a police force, a handful of bad apples, you know, cannot be remedied by just going into the barrel and picking out all those bad apples and assuming everything's going to be okay, right? All the rest of the apples are just fine. I've always described bad policing and bad police officers as part of a, a police force, a police organization, as being more like a drop of poison in a pot of chili. Ain't no one going to want to eat that chili, right? You got to start over with a fresh batch, a new pot, because, you know, the poison can permeate everything. So, you know, I've, I've always thought, friends, that government officials can have lots of power over our lives. Let's start with our elected officials. We vote for everyone from city council members and school board members up to presidents of the United States. We send people to the state house. We elect governors. We send representatives and senators to Congress. We send presidents to the White House. And all of those people have some power over our lives, right? Let's just take one example. 
Our federal politicians can increase our taxes or reduce our taxes. So they certainly have some power over our lives. But what government officials have the most direct day-to-day power or influence or opportunity to exercise power and control over our lives? I would suggest it's probably police officers. Because my senator, my city councilman can't pull me over in my car, can't order me out of my vehicle, can't direct me to get on the ground, can't handcuff me, can't take me downtown, can't arrest me. But police officers can do all of that. But we don't get to vote for police officers, which, I don't know, feels a little incongruous. I usually stay away from the big words, being a gutter kid from Jersey. But, you know, we can't vote for the people who are going to have the most direct day-to-day power and control over our lives. So I have thought long and hard over the years about what's the best way to ensure that we have the kind of people policing us, the kind of people who are wearing a badge on their chest carrying a gun on their hip and have the authority to order us out of our cars. How can we best ensure that the people who are drawn to that work and that position and that power are in it for the right reasons? And they're going to police in a way that is honest and honorable and ethical with as much kindness and empathy as a person can have recognizing police confront lots of dangerous people and are involved in lots of dangerous circumstances and yes they want to go home safely to their family every night and we understand that well some folks say well you know what you need to do is ban certain police tactics ban the chokehold ban certain weapons or equipment that they would otherwise be carrying on their belt that could be used in an excessive force scenario. You know, take away their their ASP, their baton. An ASP, ASP is a retractable metal baton. ASP is actually a, an abbreviation for Armament Systems and Procedures. Um, or maybe take away Uh, their slapjack. If you remember what the old slapjack was, I was involved in an excessive force case where a slapjack was used. It's a sort of a eight or 10 inch or 12 inch long piece of leather that has metal lodged in the, in the head of it. And it can do some extraordinary damage to somebody. You know, maybe what we need to do is ban certain holds, ban certain tactics, ban certain weapons. And And that's what we need to make sure that we don't forever see these excessive force incidents play out. I don't think that's effective. I think if anything, it gives the illusion of reform in lieu of actual reform. I don't think it's about tactics. I don't think it's about weapons. I don't think it's about whether somebody can use some kind of a modified chokehold. Because let's face it, no matter what weapon you ban, no matter what hold you prohibit, a person 
who is in policing for the wrong reasons can do a heck of a lot of damage with just their fists and their feet and goodness knows their knees. And we've seen it and we've seen the deadly consequences over and over and over and over and over. And I could go on for another hour with the overs. So what I have landed on after spending 30 years as a, a prosecutor dealing with police officers and trying and being involved in any number of criminal investigations of excessive force, I think we need fundamental reform that to me looks like three different things. We need one, extreme vetting for anybody who wants to be a police officer. Extreme vetting with full citizen participation. You know, let's face it, in this day and age, if you are a hateful person, if you're trying to sneak onto a police force because you're just dying to exercise the power and authority that comes with a badge and a gun because you want to run roughshod over people you don't like, people you find undesirable. And if you're the kind of person who is filled with hate and prejudice and bigotry and homophobia and xenophobia and misogyny, or you're just a nasty SOB, you know, not to put it too bluntly, but you just want to hurt some folk. Well, not only do you need not apply, but we need to do everything we can to ferret that out. If that's the kind of person who yearns for the power that comes with a gun and a badge. And let's face it, in this day and age, it's very hard for people to live anonymous lives. You know, if that's what you're about, if hate is what you're about, and you want to be a police officer, boy, you better be prepared for some of the most extreme vetting imaginable. First of all, yes, we're going to do all the normal things. We're going to do background investigations. We're going to interview your friends and your family members and your neighbors and your second grade school teacher. Yeah, we're going to, we're going to talk to all of them. I remember when I was having a, a background check for a, a security clearance in an espionage case I was handling as an army JAG. I somehow found out, yeah, they went back to my second grade school teacher, which I found interesting and a little amusing and I can't imagine she remembered much about me in second grade but you know we need to be just as thorough when we're talking about the power that comes with a gun and a badge as we are when we talk about the responsibility of people you know handling and being trusted to secure our national security information when they go about their work as federal employees or prosecutors or law enforcement not only are we going to do all the typical background stuff and dig a little deeper than perhaps we have in the past, not only are we going to do the standard polygraph examinations, lie detector tests, but you know what? Social media? I think we should be crawling so far up into their social media accounts so that if you've got that hate that's motivating you and that prejudice, that bigotry, that homophobia, that xenophobia, that misogyny, we're gonna find out about it and then we will show you the door because you need not apply, because you can't be trusted with the power of the badge and the gun. And all of that extreme vetting, part one, 
should come with full citizen participation. We'll have to sort out what that looks like, but you know what? The people who are to be policed by this person should be involved because they can't vote for the person, but they should be involved in the process of making sure that we've got the right person on the street with the power of the gun and the badge. People who are in it for the right reasons to protect and serve with honor and decency and respect for all people and empathy and kindness. And you got to be tough, no doubt about it. You got to be tough because it ain't easy. But extreme vetting with full citizen participation. Part two, extreme testing and training with full citizen participation. We're not just going to get the 60 or 90 day wonder out of the academy and call it a day on the testing and training front until maybe they have some annual training. I think training should be an integral part of every work week, certainly every month and every year. It should be ingrained, testing and training and testing and training. It should be part of their weekly work responsibility, testing and training with full citizen participation. Let's build the relationship between the police and those being policed. Full participation of the citizens, of the people, the ones who will be policed by these officers. So part two, extreme testing and training early and often with full citizen participation. And part three, extreme accountability with full citizen participation. No three strikes and you're out. No two strikes and you're out. One strike, one founded accusation or allegation of excessive force or otherwise abusing your authority, your power, your position, your badge, and you're gone. Because policing is too important. You don't get three strikes because that means there are three victims out there in the community who have been mistreated or abused or assaulted or worse. No three strikes and you're out. One strike and you're out. You know, you want this job, you want this power, you have to accept it on the terms that the citizens set. One strike and you're out. And that accountability, you know, there will have to obviously be a process to address and deal with allegations of police misconduct and abuse. There are all sorts of citizen review boards in place in various jurisdictions around the country, but there needs to be full citizen participation in that accountability process. And then once you got that one strike and it's been proved, well, then you are on a national registry and you will not just be shifted from one police department to another to abuse folk elsewhere. You know, you're not just going to put your abusive problems behind you and not have them follow you. No, they're going to follow you. They're going to follow you. You can find another line of work where you're not entrusted to protect and serve. So that is a three-part plan, an approach that I think will help, you know, create a nice, healthy, edible pot of chili. Extreme vetting with full participation, vetting in the process of evaluating who should and should not be entrusted with the power and authority of the badge and the gun extreme testing and training with full citizen participation and extreme accountability with full citizen participation.
And let me finish with what some people will often observe, which is that, well, the police unions have so much power that there's really nothing that can be done. Well, yeah, there's nothing that can be done if we accept the position that there's nothing that can be done. Now, let me first say I am a fan of unions. You know, I think there has historically always been a disparity in power and money between the workers and management, and I think unions are an effective way to help, if not level the playing field, because I don't know if that's entirely possible, but at least giving the workers a fair shake. You know, I was raised in part by a grandfather who was a union member, and if you'll indulge me a personal story, um, which is, I think, part of the reason I have this respect for unions and union workers and the, and the goals that they're trying to accomplish. You know, my grandfather uh, left school at, in the third grade. Very different time, obviously. He went out and felt the need to help support the family. And he learned how to paint houses. And he was a house painter. And when I was in third grade, I believe it was third grade, I was about eight years old, he started taking me on jobs. And he taught me how to paint houses inside and out. And to this day, I love painting houses, in part because I think it brings back fond memories of my grandfather. Some of the fondest memories is when we were done painting for the day, we would go to the corner bar in Clifton, New Jersey, and Grandpa would put me up on the bar stool right next to him. He'd get me a cherry Coke and a bowl of pretzels, and uh, Grandpa would get his medicine, need my medicine, which was Pabst Blue Ribbon. PBR. That was his medicine. And he would sit there and smoke his filterless camel cigarettes. And I would drink my cherry Coke and eat my pretzels after having been on a painting job with grandpa. And I thought I was king of the world. I was king of the world sitting next to my grandpa. Those cigarettes took him at age 55. But, you know, notwithstanding the fact that he dropped out of school in the third grade, he rose to the upper echelons of one of the big painters unions in New York. And he told me stories and he convinced me of the importance of protecting and promoting the rights of the workers where there was this extreme disparity of power. So yes, unions are important, including police unions. I'm not saying they should be disbanded, but I've always felt that a little bit inconsistent with the very nature of police work when the unions would swoop in and fight tooth and nail representing somebody who obviously and inarguably and criminally abused, assaulted, and perhaps killed a citizen they were sworn to protect. Is that really the best use of union resources? Or does that have to be given a relook? Because, you know, I acknowledge that there will be lots of impediments to what I am proposing, extreme vetting, extreme testing and training and extreme accountability with full citizen participation. But friends, nobody said it was going to be easy. Nobody said police reform was going to be easy. But, you know, what, what is more important? You know, yes, we have lots of reform priorities, particularly after the four years that we suffered. And boy, did the American people suffer mightily 
between 2016 and 2020, and we are still suffering for want of accountability, but I have to believe that's coming because if I give up hope that accountability is coming, I don't really know what we would be left to do or fight for or believe in, you know, and that is why we fight on every day for ourselves, for our kids, for our grandkids, for our neighbors, for our friends, and for strangers, the friends we haven't yet met, we fight on because justice matters. Friends, thank you for sitting with me on this Saturday for our longer format chat here at Justice Matters. If you want to find me elsewhere, and you've probably had your fill of me by now, but you can find me on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, Glenn Kirshner 2. You can go to my website, which is glennkirshner.com. You can find me on YouTube, Glenn Kirshner Justice Matters is the name of the YouTube channel. And if you want to more formally kind of join Team Justice and join and support our all-volunteer efforts, you can go over to patreon.com. You can sign up to become a patron. You'll get a whole bunch of behind-the-scenes looks at what we do here at Justice Matters. And I'll also send you some Team Justice and Justice Matters stickers and a personal handwritten note of thanks. So... Until next week when we sit back down at the kitchen table and talk about another aspect of government reform that we need to try to tackle. Uh, Until then, I hope you have a good, safe week, and I look forward to talking with you all again soon.